Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Contemplated and turn it this way and that, and it's such a rich passage, but I'll confess my own frustration to you guys this week and last have felt to me like doing a Concord, you know, supersonic jet buzz over Carmel. It's like, you know, and like taking the bullet train through, it's a small world. Um, (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it, you know. So forgive me for the things that I skipped that maybe you wanted to hear or more depth. Um, I share your frustration, but I, I trust that the Lord is teaching us what we need to learn. And last week we ended by considering the background of Messiah in Isaiah 53, 1 through uh, 3. We saw that in Isaiah's prophecy, his lowly upbringing, the prophecy of his lowly upbringing, his unassuming humble presence, and of course his wholesale rejection by men, and in particular by the nation of Israel. And the question that naturally arises out of that surface, that apparent, because when you look at the text, that apparent rubble that ended on a Roman cross, if you have the, the hindsight of the New Testament, you ask, where's the purpose of that? What is the purpose of that? Because on the, sur- on the surface, it looks like the servant's coming was a complete and utter failure. That's why the Jewish people to this day reject Jesus. He came lowly, he came humbly, he suffered, he died. And so where's the the purpose in that? And we want to look at that first thing this morning. The purpose of the servant's coming. We're going to also look at the means through which God accomplished that purpose. And finally, the, the vindication of the servant. But before we go there, before we go to the purpose for which he came... And by the way, that can be summed up. Let me just give you the answer and we'll backfill it later. The purpose for which he came was substitutionary atonement. It's to die in the place of the sinner. But before we talk about that, we we need to discuss a problem. We have a problem. Can we talk? (laughs) This is a really big problem. And not to sound Trump-esque about it, but it's a... It's a huge problem, huge. Can we change that analogy? Yeah, let's change that. Have you guys ever seen Apollo 13? Okay, not only the movie, but, you know, that whole mission, which has been dubbed the successful failure, which that would be kind of like an adequate title for this chapter. But what was the iconic phrase that came out of that whole experience and repeated a couple times in the movie? It's Houston what? We have a problem. If I can tweak that a little bit for our purposes here this morning, it's humanity, we have a problem. We have a serious problem. It's a fatal problem. It's systemic. And it is sin. God put it this way, and we made reference to this last week in Ezekiel 18.14, and there's no wiggle room out of this statement. God says in Ezekiel, the soul who sins will die. You commit one sin, you get the death penalty. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, whatever happened, no, nobody's perfect. That's exactly right, nobody is perfect. But God demands 
moral perfection in his presence because he is morally absolutely holy and he is 100% just and he has to judge sin. This is a real problem. You say, are you sure we're not allowed a few mistakes? No. But even if we were, a few mistakes? How long ago did you and I use those up, right? Most of us probably met that quota coming to church this morning. See, God has to judge sin. Otherwise, he'd be no worse, no better, I should say, than a crooked judge, right? And I'm, I have had it up to here with crooked officials. <laughs> oh, we'll let that one go. Don't pay attention to that. We'll hide this one. Or that's all right. We'll charge this guy for your problem. That's, that's not how God works. The soul that sins will die. We get this message repeated and its consequences in the New Testament, right? Paul tells us, for all have sinned and what? Far short of the glory of God. All have sinned. It doesn't even present it as a potential. It's indicative. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is what? And the death here we're talking about is not simply physical death, as true as that is. Because our first parent sinned, Sin, sin entered into the world and all men die. There's a one-to-one -one ratio of people that are born who die with the exception of Enoch and Elijah. Everybody who's born dies, but that's only the first death. Sin does not restrain its damages to physical death. It also produces spiritual death and that's what scripture calls the second death and that is forever and it is eternal separation from God. And if you tell that to the average person on the street who doesn't have any inkling towards God, if you say that spiritual death, the second death, the eternal death is eternal separation from God, they could possibly go, oh, well, that's not that bad, right? I mean, God and I, they would say, are not particularly close to speak of in the first place, so his absence from my life would not be that big of a thing. Besides, I like to hang around sinners anyway, and hell will be just one big giant party. Ever hear that? But guys, living without God is a living death. And all the good things that we experience every day, that unsaved men experience every day, is because of the gracious presence of God with men. Now, we don't see the full, refulgent glory of God in his presence, otherwise we would die, right? He told Moses, no man can see me and live. It's overwhelming. But his presence in a muted form in his grace and general love are with men every day. And every man daily feeds on the love of God, his mercy, his grace, his goodness, his care. Jesus himself said this, that God causes a sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His general love and grace are experienced by men every day. You say, what do you mean? <clears throat> Just think of the rest you had last night, and that everybody in this world pretty much had. That peace, that rest that rejuvenates your body, that's part of the common grace of God. The appetite that you woke up with, and the food that you satiated that appetite with, that made you feel whole and at peace. That's part of the general grace and, and the presence of God. The welcome smile of a friend. 
the embrace of a loved one in a time of distress, the laughter of children, all of that is part of the expression of God here on this earth. But in hell, guys, all those comforts will cease because the presence of God and his attributes will find no place there. He will be wholly absent. And unrepentant men will finally get their just desire. They will be separated from God forever. Imagine that. A place where a person will never experience laughter, companionship, rest, where a soul will no longer experience comfort, joy, peace, purpose. Separation from God is separation from all that he is. And men are immortal souls. We all live forever. And we either spend eternity in the presence of God's holy goodness, or we spend it apart from him with his eternal wrath. In fact, that's the only attribute of God that will be manifest in hell. His wrath. You say, what's his wrath? Let me give you a definition that I ran into a while back that is the best definition I've ever heard or read about the wrath of God. And this is in my study Bible describing, or it's a note on the collected wrath of God that is poured out on unrepentant men at the end. And it reads like this. Divine wrath is not an impulsive outburst of anger aimed capriciously at people God does not like. That's how we express wrath usually, right? Anger. A guy cuts you off on the freeway and it's like, your 90-pound golden retriever steps on your pinky with his big old paw and you think, oh, you dumb dog. You know, we we just outburst. We we aim it capriciously at, at things or people we don't like. But divine wrath is not like that. It is this. Listen, it is the settled, steady, merciless, graceless and compassionless response of a righteous God against sin. Humanity, we have a problem. Yet God did not leave mankind without a solution, and the only solution is that someone take our place to pay. Somebody has to pay. And that's why God gave his people the ceremonial system, the sacrificial system, Passover, Yom Kippur, etc., It all points to our need, our need for redemption from sin because sin separates us from God and condemns us to hell. We need redemption. And so God gave us, gave his people the sacrificial system, the the taking, to show the taking of a life for a life. This is what the whole purpose of of the Levitical system was. Listen to Leviticus 17, 11. God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. God says somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay the debt. And the sacrificial system points us to a solution, but it also underscores our dilemma, our problem. And you guys are saying, enough with problems already. Give me a solution. Such a downer, this guy. Hold on. Humanity, we have a problem. It's a big deal. You see, the sacrificial system underscores our dilemma, underscores our problem. First of all, if you're Jewish and unbelieving, you kind of look to the sacrificial system, but there hasn't been a sacrifice offered in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. 
No Yom Kippur sacrifice, no Passover lamb, no daily lamb sacrifices, nothing. No guilt offerings. But that's not even the major dilemma. Because the major issue is one of equivalency. And we alluded to this last week. And that is, how can the blood of any animal take away my sin? Right? I mean, are bulls, goats, lambs, pigeons, turtle doves, are they moral agents? Can they decide between good and evil? Can they contemplate right and wrong? No, right? A lamb or a goat doesn't get up, you know, let's say a female goat. It gets up in the morning assuming they lie down to go to sleep. I don't know if they do. You'll have to ask Eric. (laughs) Horses, I know, sleep standing up, right? How tiring. Um, But a goat doesn't get up in the middle of, you know, get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to do a mitzvah. Assuming it can speak in Yiddish. Uh, I'm going to do a mitzvah. I'm going to do a good deed. I'm going to donate the milk of my body to the poor and oppressed of mankind. Can I do that? No. Can a, a bull scheme against its master? You know, Farmer John over here, or Chaim, Farmer Chaim, he's been good to me, but you know what? Today I'm going to gore him and steal his hay. (laughs) Animals don't do that. Animals act instinctively, not morally. They don't make those kinds of decisions and distinctions. So how can an animal that has no moral fiber bear my moral failure? It can't. It can't. That's why the author of Hebrews in 10.4 says it is impossible For the blood of bulls and goats take away sins. Yom Kippur, Passover, daily sacrifices, the whole system was designed to point us to our need. It was just a reminder, folks. The author of Hebrews writes, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of of things, can ever, can never, I should say, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. It was just a shadow of the reality. But that reality, guys, is the answer to our dilemma. God has provided for himself a satisfying, worthwhile, worthy sacrifice. And it's not an animal, it's a person. And that person is the sinless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied about in Isaiah 52 and 53. So the purpose behind Messiah's coming and his suffering was to die in our place, to be our substitute, to be our sin bearer. In fact, when I share the gospel with people, I don't even say the words, have you received Jesus? Or do you, you, know, do you believe in Jesus? Because pretty much in America, everybody believes in some form of Jesus. You know, the, the people that come to your door, that be they Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or whatever, they believe in a different Jesus. So that question to them is, sure, I believe in Jesus. I, I ask people, do you know Jesus as your sin bearer? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus is our Passover. He is our Yom Kippur. And Isaiah 53 tells us all about him. As Jamal pointed out, 
Isaiah was prophesying 700 years before Jesus was born, before his life, before his ministry. And not only does this passage sound like it comes straight out of the Gospels, but I want you to listen to the language of this, this song in terms of your need and how Jesus fills the prescription of our souls. Let me just pretty much read the text with a little bit of commentary, because sometimes the most powerful part of a sermon, as I understand it, is the reading of the word. But listen to the language of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, uh, starting with verse 4, we left off at verse 3 last week. It says, Surely our griefs he bore, and our sorrows he carried. The word bore literally means to take up. And it implies the lifting of a great burden off of someone. Jesus took up our sins. Did you guys ever see Les Miserables? It's a different movie. Or hopefully you read the book or you you saw the play. But remember the, the lead character, the main guy, the hero, Jean Valjean? And he's got extraordinary strength, and there's a man there being crushed by his own wagon, and he comes over and he literally lifts this great load off this man so he can escape and not die. That's what Jesus did. And then it says he carried, literally he shouldered. We were being pinned under the great crushing burden of sin and Jesus, our Savior, our hero, comes and lifts up the burden off of us and shoulders it and carries it to Calvary. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The Jews of his day thought, oh look, he's going to the cross, he must be being judged by God for his own sin. Well, he was being judged by God, but not for his own sin, but for theirs and ours, right? Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgression. The idea here, the piercing is a fatal piercing. It's a deadly piercing. And remember, it was a substitute needed to be a life for a life. This was his life for ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's literally the word that is used to speak of someone who is trampled and the bruising and the injuries lead to his death or her death. He was stampeded. He was crushed for our sin. The burden that should have crushed us, he picked up, shouldered, and it crushed him. The chastening or the punishment for our well-being fell upon him. The word well-being, there is one word in the Hebrew. It's shalom. So the chastening, the punishment to establish our peace with God, he shouldered. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all of these references here, guys, sorrow, grief, pain, they deal with, they are referenced to our main big problem, which is sin. And that's why Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we are healed, healed of sin. All of us, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, both Gentiles and Jews. We just walk away from God. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Doesn't this read like the gospel? 
God took the sin burden of all who would believe, guys, and he laid them on his son, the sinless sin bearer. And let's think about this personally for just a moment, because we like to think in the collective we and us and them. But God laid your sins on Jesus. He laid my sins on on Jesus. The guilt for the worst things you have ever done, the things that you have forgotten or wish you could forget, the, the shame of the sins that, you know, there are things that we've done that we would be reluctant to tell any man or woman no matter how much they loved us, right? Because of the shame of them. That shame God put on Jesus, and Jesus became the embodiment of that shame on the cross. So that Jesus became all that God could not endure. All the sins of of the Ted Bundys and the Jeffrey Dahmers of this world, both of them, (coughs) excuse me, who made a very solid profession of faith in Jesus Christ before they were either killed or executed. So that Jesus became as Ted Bundy on the cross. Jesus became as the rapist, as a serial killer on that cross. And a million more like them and worse. God placed on the shoulders of his willing, sinless servant on the cross our sins to be our substitute. That's the purpose for which God came or God sent his servant and the reason why he suffered. It was of necessity, listen to me, a suffering advent. It had to be this way because somebody has to pay. And the means through which God accomplished this great purpose was the murder of his servant. The means of this purpose was the murder of his servant. That's our second point. And I know the word murder seems a little harsh to some, but that's exactly what we see happening to Jesus. There's no better way to describe it. He was murdered. And this is just so jaw-dropping awesome, guys. Not that he was murdered, but that God, and I made reference to this too last week, God took the greatest sin, the greatest evil ever perpetrated in this world, the murder of the Holy Son of God, and he turned it, to be the greatest thing that man could ever hope for, redemption. And guys, that's the way our God rolls, doesn't he? Sin devastates. I wish I could get in the face of everyone right before they're sinning or me right before they're sinning. That would be a little bit of a scary experience, but (laughs) schizophrenic. But sin devastates. It absolutely destroys. It leaves nothing but an impact crater of moral and relational rubble. But God takes devastation and he takes that devastated person and that devastating event and he redeems it. God took the murder of his son and used it as the means to accomplish the greatest good that man would ever see, the redemption of human souls. And so God accomplished his purpose through his servant's illicit trial, his unjust execution, and his burial. That's what we have before us. Look at the text, verse 7. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And this is a reference to the Lord's trial. And I put the word trial in quotations. The word oppressed here is literally the same word that is used to describe the ill treatment of the Egyptians on the children of Israel when they were in slavery. This is, this, this is literally to tyrannize, to distress with harsh treatment. It is torture and intimidation is what it is. And then the word afflicted comes from the Hebrew word that means to give an answer, but here it's constructed so that it means coerced to give an answer. And this is what the tormentors of Jesus were trying to do. They were trying to intimidate through ill treatment a, a false confession out of Jesus, which he would not give. He only spoke when they spoke the truth about him. In fact, turn to Mark chapter 14. Let's just read the narrative of, of the Lord's trial before Caiaphas. <clears throat> Keep your thumb or your finger or something on Isaiah 53. But turn to Mark 14, the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. The paragraph begins in verse 53, but let's pick it up at verse 55. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council, this is Christ before Caiaphas. The whole council there is the Sanhedrin. Kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That was their premeditated deal, their outcome, the death of Jesus. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. They couldn't get their stories straight. You've got a bunch of liars, their story is going to differ, right? Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, oh, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will rebuild another made without hands. That's not what he said. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So the big you know, chief stands up, verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned him, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, and he did not answer, like a lamb that is like a sheep that is silent before its shears, right? That's what Isaiah prophesied. Jesus knew that his life was necessary. His blood needed to be spilled. And so he kept quiet in order to submit to his father's plan humbly. And then... Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying, and this is where he gets into truth. He said, are you the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God? And he had said this earlier, and they picked up stones to kill him because they said, by you making yourself the Son of God, you make yourself equal with God. And they almost killed him. So he's saying, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. Now let that hang in the air for a little bit. Because if Jesus responded in Hebrew to this question, he simply said Yahweh, his divine name. And just to make sure there was no confusion about what he was claiming deity, he said this, and you shall see the Son of Man. That's a messianic title, the Lord's favorite title for himself while on earth. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, that is, sharing power with God as God and coming with the clouds of heaven as judge to judge, and that's the prerogative of God. Now, do you think the Sanhedrin and the chief priest understood what he was saying? Verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, 
What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all chimed in. They all condemned him being deserving of death. And some began to spit on him, at him, to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say, prophesy, who hit you? And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Now back to Isaiah 53. Jesus was oppressed and he was coerced. And it continues with his trial in verse 8. He says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The word oppression here in English, it's actually a totally different word in the Hebrew. And it's translated in other places literally as barren, as in a closed womb. You see, in the case of Jesus' trial, there wasn't any concern to dig up the facts to weigh them and to minister, administer justice. The end game, the whole point of this judicial fakery was to shut Jesus down, to convict him of sin, to condemn him to death, to shut his life down. And so this was an illegal trial from the get-go. Several reasons. For one, criminal trials were not to be held at night. That's to avoid the nefarious. You know, people do weird things at night, right? People hide in the dark. They held this trial at night with a verdict posted posted in the morning to give the trial an appearance of legality. These guys were so consumed with perception, not with substance, but with their reputations. You know, they, they wanted to kill the Messiah in time so that they could observe the Sabbath. Does that seem strange to anybody? They wanted to kill the Messiah and then go home and enjoy a Passover meal and liturgy with their families. And I'm sure they read about Israel putting blood of the lamb, the pure lamb on their doors and lentils and on their their posts. They said all the liturgy in Hebrew, they loved it. They had their little ones sit on their lap and they ate the Passover meal with them while they just killed the Messiah. They wanted the appearance of legality, so they tried him at night and posted the results in the morning. Also, all trials involving capital cases were to be tried in the temple. This kangaroo court was held at the high priest's private residence, an avowed enemy of Jesus who only had designs to kill him. And lastly, Capital cases needed to be held in public to discourage the railroading of the innocent, which is exactly what we see here. This trial was held in secret. Just the leadership and their false witnesses. Jesus was shut down. He was condemned. And then it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That is, he was led away to what? To his murder, to his execution. His unjust execution. We come to that. Verse 8. And as for his generation, it says, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? The term cut off here means literally to be destroyed from or to be destroyed out of the land of the living. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would be killed. Daniel uses much similar language to this in the great prophecy of Daniel 9, and I, we don't have time to get into it. Let me just give you the extreme uh, cliff notes of it. 
Gabriel, the messenger of God, one of the archangels, appears to Daniel and he tells Daniel that, look, this is regarding your people. And let me tell you, the most important thing regarding your people is the Messiah. He will come, and he will come 483 prophetic years from the day and the time that there is a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And that happened, excuse me, in 445 B.C. under the rule of Artaxerxes. So that set the clock ticking, right? Messiah could only come at one time. And guess when 483 years ran out? At the time and the week and the day of the triumphal entry. That was, to be exact, on the 9th of Nisan, A.D. 30. That's the first time, by the way, that Jesus proclaimed his Messiahship publicly. Remember that uh, he was received through the eastern gate as he rode on the foal foal of a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And the people were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That's Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem received your king. And the enemies of Jesus told him, tell them to shut up. They're calling you the Messiah. And what did Jesus say? If they are silent, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because it was time. It was time. And then Gabriel told dear Daniel an amazing thing. He says, 483 years until Messiah comes. Oh, and by the way, when he comes, let me quote Daniel. Daniel 9.26, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Literally, he will be delivered up to death by sentence and execution. What? That is the exact prophecy. And guess what? At the end of that triumphal entry week, what happened to Jesus? He was executed. He was crucified. Messiah will come, but he will be killed. And that brings us to Messiah's burial. Do you see how we're hovering over this? Not hovering, but jetting through. Isaiah also prophesied about his burial. Not just any burial, but an honorable burial. And you begin to think, is why, with all the important stuff to know, why does he even park on the burial of Messiah? What, why even mention it? You know why? It is to remove any doubt that Messiah's death was absolutely real. To prevent people from saying, well, he never really died. Where's the evidence of his grave? And so we read in Isaiah 53, 9, and his grave was assigned with wicked men. He was crucified between two what? Criminals. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors. He was killed with the criminals. And so he was marked for a dishonorable funeral. But what happened? Yet, verse 9, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You ought to read to yourself on your your own, John 19, 38 through 42 sometimes, But this is where the body of Jesus, it tells us, was procured by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, a member of the Sanhedrin. And he and his friend Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, very wealthy man, um, approached Pilate for the body of Jesus. And by the way, neither of these men assented to the shameful trial and execution of Jesus. They were secret disciples at this time. They probably became very vocal disciples after Pentecost. 
But they took his body by permission and they laid him in the tomb before sundown, according to Jewish law, before the beginning of the Sabbath. But the point is this, that they buried God's servant. Guys, Jesus died a real death, an atoning death. The piercing was a fatal one. It was a life for a life. But I want you to notice one more thing, because this is so important. And I have this, I don't know where to fit it in my outline, so I'll just put it here because this is when it arises out of the text. And that is this, the question, who is the architect behind the, the servant's suffering? Who designed this? And we find the answer to that in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Who is he? It's the Lord. It's God. The architect behind the servant's suffering and behind his death, behind his anguish, is God himself. It is, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> the Lord's will and pleasure and satisfaction that crushed Jesus because he was a worthy guilt offering. Listen to me, this is very important, but please understand that God's pleasure in crushing Jesus Christ is the delight that he feels in redeeming us. In finding a worthy sacrifice that can unite us to himself. That's what the joy is. It's like, God loved you so much that he took pleasure in crushing his own son in order to redeem you. It's as though when he crushed Jesus, he said, yes, they're mine. They're mine. The New Testament, guys, tells us this very thing. Romans 8.32 It says, he, the father, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not in him freely give us all things? God's was a sovereign hand that delivered up his son to the cross. Why? Why did he make Jesus suffer so? For us all. Because he knew this was the only way to fulfill his love in saving sinners. And so I guess you could say ultimately the great force behind the cross was the love of the Father for us. For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son. And so now we come full circle, and we'll be done here real quick. Full circle to where we started in chapter 52, verse 13. We kind of went through that really fast last week. Encourage you to get the podcast for that. I think it's up. But we started this whole thing with the success and exaltation of God's Messiah, God's servant. And that's where we come to now. We come to the vindication of God's servant, the Messiah, through his resurrection from the dead, through the effectiveness of his ministry or his mission, and through the ultimate triumph, his ultimate triumph and reward. And here comes the end of the supersonic buzzover, okay? We're going to do all those three things in just three, four minutes. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, to deliver him over to death. And putting him to grief, the cross, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The guilt offering always died, guys. It bled out. It was a life for a life, and that's what happened to Jesus. 
In other words, Messiah dies a real death, an atoning death. Remember what the prophet said in Isaiah? He was, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Remember what Daniel said? He will be cut off. Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. He dies a real death. And in the first half of Isaiah 53.10, God's prophet puts an exclamation mark on the finality of his death, but just as he does so, he erupts in resurrection language. Look at what he says. He will see his offspring, those that love him, that believe him, that follow him. He, God, will prolong his days. His rule as King Messiah is established and continues. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Messiah reigns to enjoy his success. He dies to save, but he lives to reign. We also see the vindication of Messiah through the effectiveness of his mission. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now, this is an interesting statement. Uh, by his knowledge, the righteous one, it could mean that because of his wisdom and understanding and, and complete control of his mission, that the prophet is saying that through that knowledge, he knows how to save sinner and he, sinners and he justifies the many. It could also be translated by the knowledge of the righteous one. That is to say, through our belief in Messiah's person and his atoning work, my servant will justify the many. Either way, God vindicates his servant through the resurrection, giving effectiveness to his saving work. And guys, that's why we're all here. I mean, 2,000 years later, masses of people, mostly Gentiles, are worshiping the God of Israel and his Messiah. Christ succeeded in his mission, and that's why countless souls are still being saved. And today, throughout the world, perhaps thousands, maybe tens of thousands, will see the light of the glory of the gospel in Christ. God vindicates his servant through the effectiveness of his mission. The blood of Christ still is strong to save. 2,000 years later. And lastly, we see the vindication of Messiah through his ultimate triumph and reward. God's servant, Messiah Jesus, will rule in his millennial kingdom. He will enjoy the rewards of his victory, and he will also share that victory with his offspring. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. There's so much to say there. Let me just point out a couple little quick things. Great wrinkle here. We are told that victorious Messiah will be given a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong. The word great, ravim, the word strong, atsumim. So who are the ravim and the atsumim? Who are the great and the strong? You ready for this? Look to your left. I mean, literally, look to your left. That would be this way. Look to your right. Guys, you're looking at him. We are the great and the strong. So get this. Messiah who came and died to redeem those who rejected him. 
First Israel in the world now turns and shares the spoils of his victory with those who caused his pain. And here, <clears throat> Scripture prophetically is looking at what we will be when we're with him. He makes us the great and the strong. That's what we will be. It's pretty wild. And interceded for the transgressions until we inherit his victory, his glory, his unimaginable riches which will take us an eternity to unfold, understand, and enjoy. Until that time, he personally intercedes for us, his beloved. He interceded for the transgressors. You know, Caiaphas, who condemned Jesus to death uh, for blasphemy, was appointed by the Romans. I don't know if you knew that. He was a political lackey. He was a pernicious man who only wanted to hold on to his power and his wealth. You know what? He's gone. But King Jesus continues to intercede for you and me, invoking his righteousness, which he has accounted to our account. What a great king we serve, do we not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just blown away by your goodness to us. Because you sent your son, your servant, humbly, meekly, to suffer and die. But it wasn't a wasted death, Lord. It was a death that we brought upon him. And that death saved us from our sins. Lord, we pray that if anybody here today, as was prayed earlier, we pray that if anybody today hasn't yet trusted Jesus as Savior, hasn't clung to him as their sin bearer, we pray that that would take place today. Lord, time is running out. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your word, for the time of fellowship and worship. And we just pray that uh, our King Jesus would be honored and, Lord, glorified through it all. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.